Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright. Welcome to The Long Read from Stuff, a podcast that showcases our best long-form writing. This episode's story is called The Trial of Maketu. It was written by Stuff reporters Charlie Mitchell and Edward Gay, and reading it for us is Stuff's Portiaki editor, Carmen Parahi. Hi, Carmen. Kia ora, Michael. Tell us a little about this story and the trial. What happened? So this story is about a Māori teenager called Maketsu. His full name was Maketsu Faretotara. Um, he later became known as Wiramu Kingi Maketsu. His story is important for New Zealand. He was the first person to be executed by the Crown. Why is that important? He was a Māori teenager. And the implications of what happened to him and the setup of the justice system after that meant the tendrils of what happened at his trial and his execution, we still see today. So we know that Māori males in particular, young Māori males, are overrepresented in the justice system. And we know right from the start, the first person to be executed was a young Māori teenager. What he did was bad. He murdered a family as well as uh, someone he was working for. Um, So he did deserve to be punished in some way. But what the context of it is, is that the British system came into full force because of the execution of Maketsu. The trial, um, his conviction and his sentencing all happened really quickly. No one really refutes other than his whanau that um, the facts were incorrect. Um, But there was context around the killing, right? So and there's context around the trial, and there was context around the execution, and it all had to do with the Crown gaining power and authority through the legal system and creating the legal system. You would have thought the first person to be executed by the Crown in New Zealand would have been a settler. No, it was a young Māori man. And unfortunately, that is still reflected today in how the justice system treats Māori and the impact on Māori still. Thank you, Carmen. Now here is Carmen reading The Trial of Maketu. Early one morning, a Māori teenager named Maketu woke to the sound of carpenters building the instrument of his death. For months he had lived in a wretched, rat-infested jail cell on Queen Street in central Auckland as he waited to stand trial. It was early in 1842, and the new colony's justice system was literally being built. The finishing touches were being made to the new Supreme Court building next door, while Makitsu awaited judgment. The wooden jail was built on a swamp, bordering a stream that carried the new city's waste to the harbour. When it rained, the sewage flooded the jail cells, one of which was 10 metres squared in area but held as many as 14 men at a time. With little else to do, Makitsu left artwork on the walls, scratchings of a horse, a waka. When it was time, the boy asked to see a reverend. Makitsu was baptised and chose the name Widemu Kingi. 
He was said to have left a written confession, accepting his death as suitable punishment for his deeds. Shortly before noon, he emerged from his cell, shrouded in a blue blanket, holding himself proud and upright as he walked to the gallows, which were surrounded by military officers. A land sale was delayed by an hour, so people could watch the boy die. Contemporary accounts say around 1,000 people attended. They were predominantly European settlers. The jail bell tolled and Makitu dropped, snapping his neck, launching him into eternity, as it was described by one newspaper at the time. Many years later, scores of people crisscrossed the busy intersection where Makutu was killed. Today, it is flanked by a farmer's, a Starbucks and a bank. A glass-clad office tower now stands on the site of the wooden jailhouse. The filthy stream was buried beneath concrete long ago. But while no plaque commemorates the first of New Zealand's 85 legal executions, Makutu's memory lives on amongst his whanaunga. 179 years later. His death marked the moment the extreme boundaries of British rule, the power to legally decide who lives and who dies, were imposed upon Māori at a time when there was considerable uncertainty about whether doing so was within the law. Makitu's death and those of Māori after him served as a clear statement that Māori law based on customs such as mana, utu, koha and whanaungatanga, had been replaced with the Queen's Law. Since then, that system has produced disproportionate outcomes for Māori, up to and including the present day. There have since been attempts to either improve or transform this system. The significance of Makatu's execution is less about the crime for which he was found guilty and more about its aftermath. Nevertheless, the crime forms important context. The official story, which is disputed and primarily represents the views of the settlers, goes like this. Makitu was the son of Ruhe, a Ngāpuhi chief and a signatory of the Treaty of Waitangi. At the age of 16, he was working on a farm on Motu Arohia in the Bay of Islands. A settler named John Roberton had bought the island from several Māori chiefs. Soon afterwards, he drowned in a sailing accident. He left behind a widow, Elizabeth, and two children. The picturesque Motu Arohia features lagoons, beaches, and majestic rocky cliffs, but Elizabeth Roberton felt isolated and miserable. Her tenure on the land was insecure, given her husband had bought the land, not her. Some Māori believe the land should be returned to its original owner, as was custom. The land carried debt. Elizabeth Roberton did not know if she could pay. She delegated management of the farm to Thomas Bull, a Pākehā settler. Bull had been in trouble. A report in the New Zealand Advertiser in June 1840 shows he was charged with robbing a schooner of tobacco, checkered shirts and three bottles of rum. It's not known what the outcome of the court case was. According to colonial sources, it was Bull who hired Makitu. 
As the son of a Ngāpuhi chief, Makitu was a rangitira and had mana. But Bull treated him poorly, castigating him for supposedly not working hard enough. He deprived him of food and taunted him. By one account, he physically assaulted Makitu, kicking him. Makitu was said to have received verbal abuse from Robertson too. Amid this tension, a three-year-old named Isabella Brind came to live on the island. Her grandfather was a Māori chief named Rewa. Her father was a settler. According to colonial accounts, Makitu was fed up with Bull and his abuse. The teenager snapped. While Bull was asleep, Makitu brandished an axe and struck the man's skull at least two times. While doing so, Robertson happened upon the murder. Makitu killed her too, and two girls, Robertson's daughter and Isabella Brind. Robertson's eight-year-old son tried to escape, but Makitu caught him and threw him off a cliff. Makitu returned to the house and burned it down before going back to his village in a canoe. The murders horrified Pākehā and Māori alike. Makitu was not the first suspect. Three Pākehā men were arrested and questioned before word travelled that Makitu had confessed. The incident came at a volatile time, just two years after the first signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. In an essay on Makitu's execution, the historian Paul Moon wrote that official policy at the time was unclear, but suggested British law applied only to British settlers. Māori had not universally ceded sovereignty, a fact some settlers were starting to contest as the Crown sought to assert jurisdiction more explicitly. In that context, prosecuting Makitu would be an unprecedented intrusion into Māori affairs, at least on matters of justice. Both Pākehā and Māori feared any action would cause an escalation from the other. The result was a brief standoff, as each side considered the next steps. At the time, Makitu's guilt was never seriously in doubt. He was said to have confessed his crime to members of his whānau, who condemned what he had done. He was also said to have confessed to a Pākehā shop owner from Kororareka, who took it upon himself to investigate the crime. The case was further complicated by one of the victims, Isabella Brind, the mokupuna of Rewa. Her death risked intertribal conflict. It was clear to all sides Makitu should be punished. The question was how and by whom. Around 20 chiefs met in the Bay of Islands to discuss the issue. All but Hone Heke agreed that British justice should be the method to resolve the matter. Makitu's work is his alone, his own. We have nothing to say for him, the chiefs wrote, in a signed letter that was later published in the Auckland Papers. That man is with you. Leave him there. Do not bring him back here to us, lest there be a disturbance. Leave him there. Even Makitu's father, Ruhe, was said to have agreed to give up his son, a decision believed to have haunted him for the remainder of his life. Once Makitu was handed over, the justice system took its course. In the space of a week, he was tried, sentenced and hanged. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Michael Wright, host of The Long Read. If you're an advertiser and you like what you're hearing, you could help us keep making podcasts like this one. Thousands of people listen to Stuff Podcasts every day. So if you'd like to be part of one of New Zealand's biggest and best podcast platforms, go to advertise.stuff.co.nz audio and get in touch with us. Back to the show. Sitting on the paipai of Parawhenua Marae near Lake Omapere in the far north, Henirangi Hemiona and Hone Mihaka reflect on the fate of their tipuna. The cousins are descendants of Ruhe, Makitu's father, and live with the intergenerational weight of what happened to Makitu. Makitu's father, Ruhe, was said to be overcome with grief. Two years after his son's death, he delivered a waiata to Hone Heke in Kaikohe expounding upon his sadness. Kaore te aroha mo hukihukiana, te panga mai ki ahau, mehe ahi e tahu. Alas, this all-devouring grief that burns within me like a flame. Ruhe committed suicide in 1865. I think that Makutu has plagued our whakapapa since then, to be honest with you, Mihaka says. To be labelled and tarnished, to feel like somehow you're a part of what appears to be a wrongdoing. Bullshit. I don't think he did it. This story doesn't seek to prove Makitsu's innocence or otherwise, but serious questions surround the investigation and trial. Officials were aware of the political implications. It seemed likely the first person to be judicially executed in New Zealand would be a young Māori, the son of a chief, convicted of an interracial murder. Both Māori and Pākehā watched Makatu's trial. As the New Zealand Herald later reported, the court was crowded with natives, to whom the calm and unimpassioned procedure of English law must at that time have been a strange spectacle. Nowadays, a defence lawyer would be given the best part of a year to prepare a defence case against a charge of murder. They would sift through Crown witness statements and to contemplate calling their own evidence. Makutu's lawyer, Charles Brewer, was afforded no such opportunity. He was appointed one hour before the trial began and didn't even have time to speak to his client. Accounts of the trial, collected by Victoria University's Lost Cases Project, suggest the case hinged on Makutu's confessions, the first to shopkeeper Thomas Spicer and to a coroner inquiring into the deaths. In his evidence, Spicer acknowledged Makitu had initially denied committing the crimes, only admitting them after being pressed multiple times over the course of a day. Spicer also confirmed he spoke to Makitu in Te Reo Māori, a language he did not speak fluently. I will never totally know all the words in the Māori language, Spicer said, according to a report of the trial published in the Māori language newspaper Te Karere o New Tirini. I don't remember what I said to the prisoner either. But whether or not he admits it, I caught him. In those days, coronial inquest sat with a jury. Spicer was not only a witness at the inquest and the trial, he had been a juror at the inquest. It is also unclear if Makitu knew that confessing to a coroner could be used as evidence against him in court. Today it is well understood that confessions can be coerced particularly from young or otherwise vulnerable people. The wrongful conviction of Taina Pora, a 17-year-old Māori teenager who falsely confessed to being at the scene of a murder, 
stands as a contemporary example, with echoes of the case against Makitu. The context of Makitu's confessions aren't entirely clear, but they occurred at a time when imprisonment, let alone execution by the state, was an unknown concept to Māori. Makitu's lawyer said as much in his closing remarks. Supposing both concessions to be admissible, Brewer asked the jurors, did the prisoner sufficiently understand the consequences of making them? Could he be aware that upon them he would be convicted, and that on conviction so heavy a penalty as death would follow? Is it not possible that, not knowing the fearful results to himself of such admissions, he may not have told the truth? The only written evidence of a confession exists in the letter, supposedly representing the thoughts of Makitu on the morning of his execution. I say it is true, it is right that I should die, the letter says. It is my own doing, and for my deeds I am going to the place that is burning with everlasting fire. It goes on to talk of religious salvation. The letter is not signed and is written in English, which Makitu did not speak. It is not clear who wrote it, or whether it accurately reflected Makitu's thoughts. The remaining evidence was circumstantial. Several Māori chiefs were called to give evidence, each saying Makitu possessed objects supposedly from the Roberton house, including an umbrella and a sack of rice with blood on it. None who testified saw Makitu leaving the island on the day of the murders, or had first-hand evidence he was involved. What other evidence is there against him beside his own confessions, Brewer asked the jury. None. The jurors took just a few minutes to deliberate on their verdict. Chief Justice Martin decided Makitu deserved the harshest sentence. He showed little sign of wrestling with whether British law applied to Māori. This is also the law of England, he said, who still reigns over the people of this land, no matter whether some are Pākehā and some are Māori. This was not necessarily the prevailing view of the colonial office at the time. In 1839, Lord Normanby, the British Secretary for Colonies, had appointed William Hobson to serve as First Lieutenant Governor of New Zealand, tasking him with securing a treaty. Normanby's written instructions to Hobson were clear. The Queen, in common with Her Majesty's predecessor, disclaims for herself and her subjects every pretension to seize on the islands of New Zealand or to govern them as part of the dominions of Great Britain, unless the free intelligent consent of the natives, expressed according to their established usages, shall first be obtained. At the time of the trial, Many chiefs hadn't signed the Treaty of Waitangi, and some who had did not acknowledge the Queen's authority over them. These questions were not explored, and so the Queen's law determined how Makitu should die. A cruel public spectacle, far from his whānau, in a country that was dramatically changing. On the Sunday before the execution, Reverend Churton, the same reverend who would later baptise Makitu, addressed his congregation making Makitu the focus of his sermon. Churton told the congregation that soon there must be exercised our obedience, our fulfilment of the command of God, that he who sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Under the law, we were forbidden to pity, 
Under the merciful gospel, we are not. He asked the congregation to pray for the salvation of Makutu's soul, not that he be spared a gruesome public death. Hi, I'm Carol Hirschfeld, the head of video and audio at Stuff. If you're enjoying our Long Reads podcast, how about contributing to the Stuff Supporter Program? You can contribute any amount you choose, and you can do it just once, or monthly, or annually. Direct support from people like you helps us produce the kind of journalism you're listening to right now. Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support. What happened to Makutu has reverberated through history, not just in the stories of his ancestors, but through the entire justice system. Criminal defence lawyer Kingi Snauga describes the case as a kākano, or seed, of a poisoned tree. That tree has now grown into a system of mass incarceration that treats Māori differently, says Snauga, of Ngāpuhi and Te Whakatohia. Snauga, who is also on New Zealand's newly formed Criminal Cases Review Commission, points to another early case with striking similarities to Makitu, the execution of his tipuna, Mokomoko. Like Makitu, Mokomoko was a rangatira, a person of mana. In 1866, he was one of five Māori hanged for the murder of German missionary Karl Volkner at a church in Opotiki. Mokomoko said he was not involved with the murder and had left the scene before it happened. He was convicted based on conflicting eyewitness testimonies. His memorable last words were, E mate harakore ana ahou, tēnā koutou pākeha, heiaha. I die an innocent man. Farewell, Pākehā. So be it. It was not until 1989 that his remains were exhumed from an exercise yard in Mount Eden Prison. Three years later, Mokomoko was formally pardoned, as was Kiriopo Terau, another of the men hanged for the crime. Together with the native land courts, which drove the urbanisation of Māori, these early criminal cases have created a sense of deep mistrust of the justice system, Snauga says, a system that has proved an epic failure for Māori. Data shows Māori convicted of crimes are more likely to go to prison than Pākehā, even when accused of the same crime. Snauga says Māori are less likely to have police exercise their powers of discretion in their favour, less likely to be offered diversion, and once in the justice system, they are less likely to be granted bail and offered plea deals. Māori make up 52% of the prison population, but only 16% of the general population. The legacy for Māori has continued, and we are losing our culture in some ways, Snauga says. We've lost lives, but the modern-day loss is the loss of culture. The trauma of that early collision of Māori and the British justice system carried on years afterwards. The most extreme punishment under the Queen's law, the death penalty, continued to be used against Māori. By 1900, more than a third of those executed had been Māori, even though the treaty was in part created by the Crown to maintain law and order of its settlers. If Makitu's fate wasn't enough to disillusion some Māori with the Pākehā justice system, another blow came within a year. A Māori woman named Rangi Haua Kuika was at her home in Port Underwood near Nelson when she and her infant son were violently murdered. 
The suspect was a Pākehā whaler and escaped convict named Richard Cook. Kuika of Ngāti Toa was related to Te Paraha and was the daughter of a chief. Māori wanted to exact utu on Cook, but were persuaded by a local missionary to allow the Crown's justice system to take its course. If Cook was prosecuted, it would show the Queen's Law could deliver justice for Māori, not just impose it upon them. The evidence against Cook was compelling, but while the case was strong, the prosecution was weak. As one missionary who interpreted during the trial later described, the prosecutor was lacking in zeal. Despite many other witnesses who could have been summoned, many of them Māori, only Cook's wife gave evidence. The prosecution assumed Cook and his wife were not legally married, which was wrong. In court, the defence argued under English law a wife could not testify against her husband. Judge William Martin, the chief justice that sentenced Makitu, agreed and the case fell apart. Cook was acquitted and faced no punishment for the murder of a Māori woman, despite a much stronger case than that which killed Makitu. In his Treaty of Waitangi claim, Ngāti Toa outlined the incident and how it had affected Māori. The Māori people of Cloudy Bay and the Wairo were enraged as well as disillusioned with British justice, its submission said. Additional evidence could have easily been obtained from other witnesses at Cloudy Bay, as the local people well knew. It was also well known that Māori had been executed in the colony for the murder of Europeans. Fairly or not, it appeared that the official legal system punished Māori murderers of Europeans, but condoned the reverse. To make matters worse, Cook was said to have later confessed to the crime before leaving the region. The failure of the justice system has long been cited as an indirect cause of the Wairo massacre, which occurred three weeks after Cook's acquittal. Back at Parafenua Marae, Makitu's Fanonga still feel pain, when thinking of the way their tūpuna was treated by the colonial justice system. Hone Mihaka leans on his tukutuku and declares his position. I don't care what the rest of New Zealand says. I really don't care. To me, it was just a lynching of an innocent young man, a man of mana, of integrity, and of stature amongst his own. Never to be forgotten, bro. Always to be remembered. It's a crime what they did to him. Mihaka and his cousin Hinerangi Himiona believe it's possible Makitu was innocent, or at the very least, that the case was more nuanced than the historical account would suggest. But even if the Pākehā account was correct, Himiona says the prolonged trial, incarceration and subsequent hanging would have been overwhelming to the young man. Contrary to the historical account, it was likely Ruhe had been reluctant to hand over his son and may have done so under duress. At the hui to discuss Makutu's fate, Hamiona says it was Honeheke who most keenly saw the implications of submitting to British justice, likely due to his upbringing in the Pākehā world. Any opportunity where he had to challenge the authority that was imposing itself, he took, she says, and of course he could see that as soon as we gave in to anything, it would be a step in the wrong direction. Those fears came to fruition. Once Makitu had been tried and executed under the Queen's law, 
the precedent had been set. Several years after Makitu's execution, Heke became a key figure in the Northern War, in which Ngāpuhi tribes fought each other as well as British troops. Makitu's execution was one of several factors leading to the conflict. It resulted in tribes warring with one another, Hone Mihaka says, and aligning themselves both for and against that same authority and power four years later. There's no greater message to send to a people. Your land can be seized, you can get that back eventually. Your resources might be seized, and you can fight to get those back. But no amount of fighting can bring Makitu back to the table and sitting with his family again. By capturing his tūpuna and killing him in public, the Crown was saying something ominous. Put it this way, Mihaka says, I am now your god. That was The Trial of Makitu on The Long Read from Stuff, written by Charlie Mitchell and Edward Gay and read by Carmen Padahi. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell and produced by me, Michael Wright. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listen via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.